Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and this is NPR News. Thanks for listening. Today, I want to talk about what it's like to be without a place to live. Last month, the city of Minneapolis broke up one of the area's largest homeless camps. More than 100 people have been living in tents and other temporary structures at the encampment for months. It's just one of many signs that an increasing number of people in Minnesota are living without shelter. We also know that people are riding metro transit buses and trains to find safety and stay warm. Minnesotans are sleeping in out-of-the-way corners of the skyways and living in their cars. There are many reasons for the rise in homelessness, and government and social services are struggling to respond. Last week, a faith-based organization in Ramsey County announced it would start putting up people in area churches to help some of the families who are overwhelming Hennepin County's emergency shelter program. So this hour, I'm talking with three guests with close ties to this topic. We'll discuss why homelessness is more visible than ever and break down some of the myths about why people are without shelter in the first place. As I talk with them, I want to hear from you too. Have you been without a place to live? Tell us your story. What led to it? What were the greatest challenges? And have you been able to move into more permanent shelter? What helped you get there? And do you have questions for our guests about what they are seeing in their work? The phone lines are open. You can call us at 651-227-6000. Again, the number is 651-227-6000. Or you can call us at 800 242 2828. Let's introduce our guests. We have in the studio this morning, Sergeant Beverly Rodriguez, who oversees Metro Transit Police Department's Homeless Action Team. Did you know there was such a team? She and three outreach officers ride the buses and the trains and do other outreach to connect people with emergency shelter, housing vouchers, and other resources. Good morning to you, Sergeant Rodriguez. Good morning. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. We also have with us uh, Milton Manning. Milton is a U.S. Navy veteran who once experienced homelessness. He currently serves as a justice consultant for the state's Interagency Council on Homelessness. He works at Peace House, which is a community center serving people sleeping outside and low-income adults in Minneapolis. Hi, Milton. Nice to meet you. Good morning. Good morning. Monica Nilsson is here, too. Monica has operated street outreach, shelter, and housing programs in the Twin Cities area for 30 years, and she serves on the board of Trellis, which is a housing developer and property manager of of uh, 5,000 units across the state. And she's on the board of Mile in My Shoes, whose mission is collective transformation through running and reducing social uh, social isolation. She's also on the board of directors of Peace House. Thank you for uh, coming back to the program, Monica. Nice to see Good you. Good morning, Angela. Hi. So uh, we don't want to talk a whole lot about numbers, but there, there are some numbers I want to include in this conversation. We know the number of people without shelter has been steadily going up in Minnesota since the early 1990s. And uh, Monica, Back in 2018, the Wilder Research uh, Minnesota Homeless Study counted more than 11,000 people, 11,000 people without shelter on a single night across the state of Minnesota. And I know we're waiting for an updated count, but what are you anticipating when we look at this again? Do you think that the latest study will show an increase in uh, people experiencing homelessness in Minnesota? Just a bit of a tweak, Angela. That count of 11,000 was people who didn't have housing. Mm -hmm. So there were people in shelter with that 11,000 count. But what I can say now is that 22% of our state's homeless population are without shelter. So we use the term unsheltered. 
sleeping on the trains, on car, in cars or tents. Mm-hmm. And so have you noticed, I, I mean, it seems to me uh, that homelessness has become more visible throughout the state. I see more people who are living outside in public spaces. Have you found that to be true? It is true, and we have the data to back it up. So a small example is that nine years ago, the federally mandated count of people that we do in January, our coldest month, found about 125 people outside on one night. Last year, it was 469, so almost quadruple the number our data shows. And that is in in what area? That is in Hennepin County alone. In in Hennepin County alone. And then what is your understanding? What's driving it? Like, why are people without a place to live or outside? Well, one of our challenges is that we have perennially had a patchwork of funding for our crisis response. We fund shelters to be open during the winter months, or we fund shelters to be open overnight. And so nonprofits are constantly trying to keep people indoors. And this is really a very simple way to say it, but if people aren't inside, they're outside. And now when people aren't inside in even the most basic setting, we have more and more people outside, and that's what the public is seeing. Milton, tell me what you're seeing at Peace House, where you work. Um, That, again, is a day program for people without shelter in Minneapolis. Uh, Beginning with the morning hours, what's a typical morning like that? Uh, A morning is uh, very active. Um, People have been outside all night. And so um, our doors are open at 9, and we're full. It's not odd to find that we serve uh, at least 50 people by 930. Mm-hmm. that's in the door with a cup of coffee and a donut in their hand by 9.30. At the end of the day, we, um, last count, is averaging like 120, 125. And your interactions with, with uh, these people, uh, what are your conversations with them like? What are they talking about? Everyday things. Um, how cold it is outside. What's going on in, uh, in um, Ukraine. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's regular people. It's conversations. I mentioned to you when I walked out my house this morning, I'm like, oh, it's cold. It's like 15 degrees. I got in my car. My car was cold. And then I was thinking about what it's like to have no choice but to sleep outside. Um, and as we think about the cold weather, um, what what can you tell people about what that experience is like, knowing that that is, that is what you're going to be facing? Oh, it's disheartening. And especially um, when I used to work at the shelter, at Elam's shelter, Strong Tower Shelter, um, like I said, um, the hardest thing for me to do was to tell our seniors and our disabled community members that I'm sorry, but at seven o'clock, we both have to be on the outside of this door. And it's 30 below, I mean, 10 below zero. And I, I feel you. I can give you an extra token. But we about to go to this bus together and we're going to get on and I'm going home, but you're going to be on there. And that was the hardest thing I had to do. At seven at night. Cause it's a, seven it's, in the morning. Oh, seven in the morning. We've got to gotta go. And then most shelters don't open and feed you until nine. Mm. So what you're doing for two hours in below sub weather. They're visiting Sergeant Rodriguez on the trains. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. And it is, uh, you know, we've seen the headlines about, uh, you know, what is happening on the train, Sergeant uh, Rodriguez. Uh, you started working with Metro Transit back in 2017. Have you seen more people using the trains, the buses, transit c- centers for shelter? Yeah, I, I, it varies. You know, there's some years and, you know, the winter months and the summer months, um, it, it fluctuates quite a bit. But currently right now, yeah, I'm seeing an increase in homelessness on the trains at our transit centers. And um, 
like they mentioned, you know, they come see me in the mornings because those pull-in trains, I, I um, assist with outreach events over at the Union Depot early mornings at 8 a.m. And there's just a ton of folks just sleeping on the trains because that's what they got on early in the morning after they get kicked out of the shelters. And so I'm just trying to provide resources. I'll refer them to um, the George Vladimir Library in downtown St. Paul because uh, we know a few social workers that are down there providing it's kind of like a one-stop shop, providing all kinds of resources, shelter, um, housing, treatment, uh, you name it. And so that's that's pretty much where I'm, I'm you know, I come in and I inform everyone, hey, by the, by 10, 10 a.m., go down there, go see this person. They can help you out with this, this, and this. Uh, if I need to provide them with a, um, a free ride pass, I'll do that too. But my my goal is to get this information out to them so you, they can utilize these services. And you're in, I should tell our listeners, you're in full uniform. And I'm, I'm wondering, how do people react when they, they see you? I mean, are they okay with talking with you or do they are, are they hesitant to speak with you because they think they're going to be in trouble? Yeah, it's uh, initially they are pretty, you know, freaked out and, oh, they think I'm just going to kick them off the train. But then when I start interacting with them, asking them if they're okay, what I can help them with, what resources are available for them, they completely change their demeanor. And there are, a lot of them are very receptive. There, there's still some that just don't like police, um, don't like the uniform. But, you know, afterwards, with uh, for the most part, most of them are thanking me. They're like, oh, you know, thanks for talking to me about this, or I appreciate it. Thanks, officer. And, you know, I get a lot of, you know, just a lot of people thanking me for the way I approach them because, you know, there are a lot of officers are strictly, you know, they're just to enforce the law and to kick them off if they don't have a free ride pass or if um, if they're not riding the trains for the purposes to get from one place to another or if they're smoking or if they're drinking. And, you know, a lot of it has to, you know, I always say um, homelessness, homelessness goes hand in hand with the drug um, epidemic and mm-hmm. a lot of them are, are on drugs while they're, you know, homeless on the street. So my main priority is just to get them the resources they need because kicking them out and off the trains is really just, they're going to come back. Uh, So I really just want to get them the help that they need and get them in somewhere. Are there a lot of of teenagers and young adults riding the trains and buses? Yeah, I've seen an increase within the last year of of youth uh, riding. Thankfully, I have... um, partnerships with a lot of youth organizations that help out with that. So as soon as I give a call um, to one of these organizations, they can take them in, get them in for the day, give them a warming center. But I have seen an increase in that. And I think that has a lot to do with, like I mentioned, the drug, Mm -hmm. the drug use. Um, And a lot of them aren't very receptive. But when they are, I mean, I'll get them a spot right away and get them in somewhere to get some help. Monica, what can you tell us about what we know in terms of you know, people who are without stable housing, uh, people who don't have a place to be overnight. Are, are a lot of them children and, and young people? Yes. I just want to um, maybe break a little bit of a myth that when the public generally sees someone who they can identify as homeless or maybe looks like they're using drugs or alcohol, it's easy to point and say, oh, there's a homeless person. Um, None of us really know how to point to a 10-year-old and say, oh, there's a homeless person. And the reality in Minnesota, if we took all Minnesotans who are homeless and just made them 100 people, is that 47 of those 100 are children or youth. And so nearly half our homeless population are children and youth. And of the adults, 10 of them of that 100 are seniors or older Minnesotans. And so the population that Sergeant Rodriguez is talking about is about 25 of the 100, 
And of those 25, not every adult is chemically dependent. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a portion of that 25. But because they're so visible and we, with our judgmental minds, can say, oh, there's a person who should quit drinking, we think that is what homelessness is. And it really is just a portion. Milton, you have been homeless uh, a few times in your lifetime and also in different states. I want to hear more about your story. Um, can you share with us how you, uh, you know, became um, homeless the last time here in Minnesota? I, I know that you had an apartment. And so what happened that um, that that required you to, to leave that apartment? How did you lose it? Uh, the complex was sold. The city of Richfield uh, couldn't stop or help us. Um, and so uh, I was employed. I was employed at a nice little apartment out there on 77th Penn, and I received a letter that said at the end of your lease that you would no longer be welcome at uh, at this location because we're no longer accepting your your your, your voucher. Okay, so it's it was Section Eight. It was. I'm right. a veteran, so I I have a veteran's voucher. Okay, and so so then what happens? I I was at the end of my lease, <laughs> so I had to move. And at that time, a single male, a single person, period, trying to find an apartment was impossible because they just put out evicted 238 families. Mm -hmm. So they were placing families. So single people were just, I don't care what, how much money you had, you were just not getting an apartment. How much time did you have to look for an apartment? Oh, I think they gave us like six months. But mm -hmm. I ended up being homeless after I got the voucher. It took me another year to find a place that would accept it. And then you will lose your voucher if you don't fall into a, a, a time slot. And so you have to start all the book. And it's not a, because you didn't do it. It's not like, like you're because the veterans do give you a case manager. It's not like your case manager is not out there doing their job. There just wasn't any apartments. There's nowhere to go. Nowhere so where did go. you go? Where were you sleeping? I, I went to the house of charity. And what is shelter. that? Uh, there's a shelter. And, but they had the veterans program. They woke me in. I had a single room and they gave me stable stability to keep on working and being productive and getting the proper rest and the proper meals. You know? So you have a job, but yet you're experiencing homelessness. Correct. That's why I want to speak about the different faces of homelessness, because people just think since you're homeless, that you're not employed. Or if you're homeless, you have a drug problem. If you're homeless, you have a mental illness. But these are our issues. But that there's many faces of homelessness like like me. Mm -hmm. Um like, uh, say you've been married 20 years and you and your wife decide to break up. You, she takes everything. What are you? You're homeless. <laughs> Not, are you a bad person? No, you worked. You paid your taxes. You did everything. The relationship didn't work. And this is the consequences. But that you're homeless. And so I want to take the stigmatism out of homelessness because it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's not evil. Mm -hmm. And many people believe that these are these are people. They're just not trying. I think some oh, people. That's 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 not true. Right, um, Angela. Yes, Milton is an example of um, where I've seen Republicans and Democrats agree on policy, and that agreement was that people who have served our country shouldn't be sleeping outside. And so, when Milton, who was a recipient of a veteran's voucher, to gain housing as he was gaining employment. That is an, a, a wonderful example. But as, as he exemplifies, um, there can be discrimination with a rental assistance of that type. 
And so one of the solutions that is before us is something called the Source of Income Discrimination or Protection Act that our legislators can talk about if somebody, like a veteran, is using rental assistance, can a landlord discriminate and say, we don't accept that type of rental income? And um, I think we should think about that because we see youth with autism, we see seniors with disabilities who have rental assistance based on um, either a protected status like a veteran or a disability who are being discriminated against. And so I hope that that is a solution we move towards at our legislature. We're talking about the rise in homelessness. And I want to hear from you as I talk with three guests. Um, Have you been without a place to live? Tell us your story. What led to it? What were the greatest challenges? And if you, you know, um, have questions for our guests, uh, you can certainly call in and ask them a question. We're talking again with uh, Sergeant Beverly Rodriguez, who oversees the Metro Transit Police Department's Homeless Action Team, uh, Milton Manning, who is here with us, who has experienced homelessness and currently works at Peace House, which is a community center serving people who are sleeping outside, and Monica Monica Nilsson, who has operated uh, street outreach, shelter, and housing programs in the Twin Cities for more than 30 years now. You can call us at 651-227-6000 or call 1-800-242-2828. In Minneapolis, we have a listener on the line. This is Michael. Good morning, Michael. What do you want to tell us as we talk about this? Um, Well, first, I want to say hi to Milton and Beverly. I've worked with them both. uh, (laughs) They're nodding and smiling. (laughs) <laughs> Hi, Michael. Um, I worked with uh, Milton at the Minnesota Interagency Council on Homelessness Project. Um, I think I want to stress what was said earlier about, first of all, braiding funding streams and making more consistent funding streams. Uh, the, the problem we have is that no one is able to secure enough funding to actually create permanent solutions. A lot of the time, because there's only stopgate funding and patchwork funding, we have to, we can't form a long-term plan. All the plans have to be one year or two year because that's the funding cycle. So that's creating kind of a reoccurring issue. And then I think another thing that's incredibly important is these uh, source of income discrimination protections. We've had, you know, billions of dollars passed last year for housing, but those dollars are not going to be able to work effectively and get out into the community in a timely manner if people aren't able to actually use those funds uh, getting an apartment. And Michael, I have to ask you, what's your experience with homelessness? Have you been homeless before in your life? Yeah, I have been. Um, I don't really like talking about it, to be frank, Mm -hmm. um, especially in a very public setting. It's very uh, re-traumatizing for me. And the work that you're doing, does that, um, are you feeling hopeful that we will get to some solutions? Yes, I am. I think I'm seeing a shift, especially through our work at Mitch, uh, a shift in the way the state, uh, the state and the counties and the local nonprofits are thinking about homelessness. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing a shift in the way they're thinking about solving homelessness, where the people with lived experience are brought in and actually given power in designing and implementing solutions. Mitch, again, is a great example of that. And I think that kind of thinking is going to, is the thinking that we need to end homelessness. 
Thank you, uh, Michael, for calling in. I, I appreciate you um, sharing your, your thoughts with us. Another phone call. Uh, let's go to Brainerd. Uh, Randy in Brainerd is listening to us this morning. Hi, Randy. What did you want to tell us? Um, I just kind of wanted to give people the face of homelessness in the greater Minnesota. Thank you. It looks, it looks quite a bit different than it does in the Twin Cities. Mm-hmm. And do you work with an agency or, or where do you get your, your insight from? Um, I have lived experience with homelessness. Okay. And what do we need to know about what it's like in, in rural communities? Um, it doesn't look the same because people aren't sleeping on the streets. There's not. Um, the, Brainerd finally opened a, a warming house, which is amazing. Uh, they opened it two years ago. But people are living in uh, fish houses, in garages, um, just stacked in, house, in um, other people's houses. It's in a lot of places that aren't meant for human habitation. Randy, can I just ask about transportation? How does that work in rural Minnesota? Um, it's it's quite a big challenge. Um, so I've been homeless out in the middle of the country, and what that means is like 20 miles away from the nearest grocery store. And that's just a grocery store. That That isn't any of the county buildings. Like I've lived where I've been 35, 40, almost 50 miles away from the county, any of the county resources. Um, and you can't just hop on your bicycle and ride that far. So transportation uh, is a big hurdle. Randy. It's a huge hurdle. Right. Um, and anything else you want our listeners to know about, you know, what can be done or what would be helpful? Um, compassion and, and the fact that you're asking questions about what can be done. Um, we've got some great callers on the line and I, I don't know, Monica, I, I get, I get kind of tongue-tied sometimes. <laughs> All right. Randy uh, there in Brainerd, uh, thank you for, for sharing and, and for calling in this morning. Um, as, as we look at, you know, more rural communities and just the challenges in a lot of different ways, you know, what are we seeing that seems to be working, um, Monica? Are, are we seeing some, some innovative things happen? Well, I want to recognize that while homelessness increased um, in the last year, nationally and in the metro, it actually decreased in unsheltered homelessness um, in greater Minnesota. Now, part of that may be most of our population is in the metro, um, but I think people really struggle um, to be homeless in greater Minnesota. And so some people do come to the metro in search of hope, and they are from Mora or Baxter or places like that. So we do see that. Um, I'm hopeful that with more education, people are becoming more aware. And I guess I encourage listeners to uh, learn that learning is an act of service. And so if you have the opportunity to learn about homelessness in your community and ask, every school district has a homeless liaison for homeless children. And so you might not think there are homeless children in Mm -hmm. St. Cloud, but just ask the school district. Milton, uh, you told one of our producers that the hardest thing for many people um, who are without shelter is simply getting rest, Um, not being able to get rest, not being able to sleep. We know that has a huge impact on mental health. Uh, What can you tell us what you have seen, uh, what you've experienced when you just can't get rest? If you're not resting, you're not thinking correctly. Your body needs that rest to to get you to where you need to go. Say, say, for instance, um, you're at the shelter and you you leave early just to make it to your day labor. It's a two hour maybe ride there. Mm-hmm. You get in there early, you sit. 
you're not resting on the bus. You're not resting while you're there. Then you got to try to find somewhere to eat on the way back. No rest. Then you get to a shelter where you're around hundreds of people that you've never seen. No rest. Then you got to lay next to them. And then with the possibility of you being hurt or your property being stolen or you just being disrespected or somebody's just melon foul, you know, mm-hmm. no rest. And For over, days, weeks, months. Months, years. Yeah. And, you know, so that is a hard pill. Sergeant Rodriguez, can you speak to that? Um, seeing people who just cannot get rest and need rest and how that shows up in their behavior and their thought yeah, process. Yeah, actually, um, a story, I, uh, and I won't mention where he works, but I ran into a gentleman that has a job, uh, was taking one of our late buses from a transit center um, to a shelter every night from his work and then recently got let go um, and was sleeping in our transit center and reached out to me uh, for resources and heard that we have a housing program and wanted to know more about it. And, you know, having compassion and hope is what I always, he, he was having a very hard day. He was let go from his job. His cell phone had broke and had no way to contact anyone. And so I was giving him resources for, you know, to go get a free cell phone somewhere um, I started providing him with shelter for the night uh, at Safe Space in St. Paul. And, you know, I I just mentioned him, like, hey, you need to get some rest, go to this day center. I gave him a few different locations. All I could do is provide the resources for him and maybe give him a ride if needed. But I'm constantly writing down different resources, different partner agencies that we work with, organizations. And I'm like, hey, call this person. Sometimes I'll call him for them and see what we can do right there on the spot. But I realized that, you know, and them sleeping at our transit stations, they're just going to be woken up by someone and, mm-hmm. hey, you need to move it along or you can't be sleeping here. So I want to get them somewhere so they can get some rest. And I look up as many day centers as I can in both Hennepin County and Ramsey County and I say, hey, try this one, try this, and here's some free ride passes, get there. Um, I'm going to submit your referral for the night, okay? And, hey, stay strong, okay? Don't let this bother you. Like, I mean, Obviously, it's going to bother him, but like, don't let it get to his day and ruin his entire day. Because sometimes it, they're just having a stressful day after everything just keeps piling up on them. And so it's giving them hope, you know. And and I give them my direct m- number to myself. I'm like, hey, call me if you need anything. And if I'm not working, I'll try to get one of our homeless action team officers to come and assist you. They work till one a.m. So I'm just constantly providing them with hope and resources and. I, just that's mm-hmm. all I can do. Um, I want to hear more about the homeless action team or, or HAT as it's called. Um, I know it's been around since 2018 um, and it is considered a model for how to respond to homelessness. But um, you, you've talked about these conversations. Uh, I've, I've mentioned that you're in uniform. When you approach someone, what are you saying? What are the first words that you say? And, and how do you have these conversations? You know, you're looking at people clearly in distress mm-hmm. and, um, you know, you're a police officer, you're, but you're you're also you're, you're more than that. I mean, you're you have family members. You're a human being. You must feel for these these folks. Oh yeah, yeah. It's a very difficult position that we're in. The homeless action team officers because we are social workers, and at mm-hmm. least that's what we call ourselves, mm-hmm. social workers and police officers at the same time. But our main priority is getting folks in somewhere and getting them resources. Um, our first interaction is it's you know. It, you you kind of have to read the person and know how to approach them because they it can come off a little offensive. I mean, you can't assume that someone's homeless either. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, my first interaction is I'll ask them how their day is going. Like, how are you? You know, anything I can help you with? Can, do you need some help with maybe finding a route, um, getting somewhere? 
And I kind of just start reading them from there just with a small conversation. Sometimes they're sleeping and I'll wake them up and say, hey, how's it going? I'm just checking up on you, seeing if you're okay. Um, can I help you with anything? And I do identify myself, you know, working with Transit PD, but I also identify myself as working on the Homeless Action Team Unit um, and that I do have resources if they need any. And so a lot of times, you know, a lot of times folks will say, nope, I'm good. Thank you. And it could be the uniform that's really throwing them off and, um, other times are, they may have heard about us and they are, there's a ton of folks in the, the Twin Cities that know about the Homeless Action Team. We've mm-hmm. been around since 2018. So, um, And satisfying parts of your job, have you been able to see something through? We talked about children and, and, and families. Have you been able to, to, to place you know, some people or maybe some, some young people or, or families into stable housing that, you know, you've kept track to see what happened after you gave them some resources? Absolutely. So uh, till from... 2018 till the end of 2023, we've housed a little over 500 individuals, and that's including adults and and children. And some have fallen out, yes, um, due to different issues, um, drug problems, uh, mental health. But there's some that do stay, and we do stay in contact with them. And in fact, I was just speaking to one of my day officers this morning, and she got a text message from someone we housed four years ago. And she sent her a text saying, happy four-year friend anniversary or something like that. Mm-hmm. And she, um, we housed her and her two uh, children, and she wanted just to give an update on how she was doing. She said, I'm getting a job, or I just got a job, something similar to that. And her children are doing really well. They're looking into a bigger uh, place to live now. And, I mean, just little, little notes like that, little text messages or calls uh, that they're doing well, and they've been in this housing that we provided for them years ago. It's, it's awesome to hear. It made her day, and it made my day when she told me. So, uh, yes, we do hear from them quite a bit. Uh, and she and I get pretty excited when we, you know, when we talk about how close we are to housing someone. In fact, we were just talking this morning, too, about um, a, a mother with five children that's getting that just signed her lease paperwork. And we're going to house her, I'm hoping, within the next week. And um, we'll be helping her move in. We have a a mobile assessment vehicle that it's like a small bus. We'll help them carry any any items that they have, maybe in a storage unit or somewhere else, and we'll help them move into their new apartment. But, yeah, we have tons of stories. um, And it's just it's awesome to hear when when we get calls or text messages from families that are still housed till this day and they're making you're making a difference from that initial contact yeah. how are you doing do you need anything we were talking about two things uh finding meals how do you find meals where are the meals what's the challenge with meals and um and also toilets so milton you you were telling me uh the weekends are a particular challenge uh sundays in particular for people that you talk to finding uh food Yes, uh, just um, uh, over on Sundays, you know, um, there in the metro area, I uh, see people at Peace House say that there's no place in the metro, downtown metro area that was serving food. So if they didn't get our sandwiches and our little meals we laid out on Friday, mm-hmm. they don't have anything. If they eat all that up on Saturday, they don't eat on Sunday. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why we have so many people at our front door lining up. They run straight in for the cookies and donuts, pass the coffee. They need something in their system right then. So thinking about the weekend I had. And so maybe there are programs, but the awareness may not be there. Yeah. Monica, do you, what are you hearing or seeing about meals, particularly during the weekends? Well, this all, to me, relates to health. And um, we can be compassionate and we can build housing, but how are we addressing people's health? And 
I would actually like to challenge us to not think about homelessness and winter. Think about homelessness and toilets. Which months of the year do we need access to a toilet? Every month. Every. Which days, okay. which hours of the day do we need access to a toilet? All the time. Yes. And so when we're creating this patchwork of people can get a crisis response from 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. or from November to April, um, people's health is impacted. When they're not eating right, then their diabetes is impacted. When they have to use uh, the transit center for their bathroom, that's a public health issue. So um, the funding that we have right now in housing is insufficient. And even though there was a huge $1.3 billion invested last year, 70% of that was for capital or home ownership. And another part of that was for prevention, which is all wonderful, but this crisis response always falls last. And so things like the Bridge to Shelter Act that is forthcoming through Hennepin County and the continuums of care to say we need to have a sustainable place to fund emergency services so that people aren't suffering in their health is something that we need to look at. Sergeant uh, Rodriguez, I, I want to talk to you about, you know, what you're hearing from people about why uh, they would would rather be on the train or a bus than going to a shelter. In those conversations, what do you hear? Uh, it's a mixture of things. For one, one that I hear very often is um, maybe they had a bad experience at a shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have PTSD from something that happened um, at uh, a shelter and they refuse to go to any um sometimes it's just our system um they are it's it they can they can see their friends um maybe their their friends are on the system and they want to ride with them and that's the easy way to find them they don't have phones to communicate Mm -hmm. another reason is maybe they are on um some type of drugs and they use a lot our systems have a ton of cameras so a lot of these overdoses occur on camera because they know that we would find them and um, we would uh, – we have a ton of Narcan, so we, we administer Narcan right so away. So there are cameras on the buses yeah. and trains, yeah. so it could seen a, a safer place yeah. to be. safe place. A year ago, I had the Metro Transit Police Chief and the Interim General Manager on as, as guests, and we were talking specifically about you know uh, the use of, of narcotics on the trains and buses. And, mm-hmm. and it, has it gotten better? And, and what are you seeing, you know, particularly with young people in narcotics? It, it you know it, some lines have gotten better let's put it that way for instance our blue line that runs from MOA to Target Field that looks a lot better now mm-hmm. but our green line that runs from uh, Target Field to the Union Depot is pretty bad still um, but like I said these these folks as much as you kick them off or, or trespass them they will continue to uh, use on the train because that's where they feel safe and that's where they know that if they get the overdose that we will come and administer Narcan and bring them back or somebody will. Have you had to do train. that? I have, yes, mm-hmm. several times. And in, in bathrooms, in our, our transit center bathrooms, speaking of bathrooms. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, we find them in the bathroom as well and they know that we're constantly checking those bathrooms. Um, our MOA bathrooms, for instance, at the Mall of America mm-hmm. um, Transit Center. So, yeah. And Angela, we mm-hmm. can create shelters where everything Sergeant is going through on the trains can happen 
in a setting, a shelter setting, where staff can be Narcanning people as well. So this doesn't have to happen in public. Because right now there, there are a lot of rules in shelters. So maybe I can- Most shelters are not sober. Mm-hmm. So the, the idea that people can't go to a shelter, but I guess I would ask Sergeant Rodriguez, what time does the safe space shelter open that you refer people to? I usually have them there by 10 p.m. And, and what time does it close? And so that's the issue. So they, I think they get kicked out around 6 a.m. And that's the gap that I'm seeing of a lot of folks writing in the morning. So this morning when I was at Union Depot, it's all those folks that got kicked out from the shelter early in the morning. And they're writing up until um, the Opportunity Center opens up for breakfast. So it's a cycle that just, it doesn't end. Milton, yes, people are just trying to survive the day. The day, the second, you know, when you, like I said, when you, not getting any rest and for whatever reason you're in this situation you just keep on getting pushed down pushed down the road just a little bit further down the road but you're coming right back to the same place the next day and it's just uh, like the groundhog day situation mm-hmm. let's uh, bring in uh, another listener as we talk about um people experiencing homelessness and and their stories and, and what can be done uh some solutions uh that would bring about change in minneapolis jessica's on the phone jessica thank you for holding thank you for waiting and what do you want to share with us hi thanks for taking my call um i guess i'd just like to speak a little bit to um just how hard it is to rent in the twin cities how expensive it is and kind of like in uh specifically the evictions um you know, it seems like once you're evicted, there just isn't a really a, it's an extremely difficult path forward to getting any kind of housing. Um, my brother experienced this when my mom passed away. He was a kind of a caretaker for her, so they were getting income. And then when she passed away, he was, you know, working and um, started, you know, lost the place they were living due to an eviction and then moved into kind of those extended stay hotels, which are super, super expensive. So that didn't last long and kind of burned through his paychecks. But trying to get a place, you know, you often need two and a half to three times um, your income, which is a lot of your paycheck. And specifically, if you're a single person, there's not a lot of, um, when he was in Anoka County, there really wasn't a shelter at all for him. And so it was just, you know, I think the evictions just are really, really a setback for people. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's I don't know if you're if you're um, your experts know much or if they see that much, like it's just hard to get people into housing mm-hmm. when they have these on their past. Jessica there in Minneapolis. Thank you. Uh, Milton, you're nodding your head. A lot of conversations with people who have been evicted or, you know, you said you had a, it took you a long time after you lost your apartment. It took me over a year and a half to find a place. So, yes. And then when they say that, I think that's another way that they. Show their racism in their housing implementation because anytime a poor person has to make three times the amount, and then I got other friends that's well off to do, and they go through the same situation, and they only got to pay one, or it's not even brung up. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not even brung up. It's not even a, a barrier. But for people of color, is is a true barrier. Monica, um, we've seen a lot of people. During the pandemic, uh, since the pandemic ended, um, the evictions, the number of people evicted. And is that adding to the number of people who then, you know, are not able to recover from that and they, they, they have nowhere to go? Yes. And so the significant increase in homelessness and Hennepin County really takes the preponderance of the burden 
of addressing um, people who are without housing at the moment. And so the idea that we now need to find places for people to be in an emergency, and we're faced with, um, I'm thinking of Randy, the caller in Brainerd, we're hearing from a lot of employers now who are actually taking over these extended stay motels for employees in greater Minnesota. And so we've lost even some of that ability to put people experiencing homelessness into a hotel stay where a community might not need a a ground, a shelter, um, but use hotels. Even in Scott and Carver County, they use hotels. Um, But they're competing with employers who don't have housing for their own low-income employees. Let's take another phone call uh, from a listener as we talk about... uh uh, experiencing homelessness and the the increase in the n- number of people who are without shelter. In St. Paul, Levi is on the phone. Good morning, Levi. What do you want to tell us? Uh, good morning. Hi. So I'm also a person that almost ended up being homeless. And part of it was that there's a lot of discrimination in our court system against fathers in divorces. They're not treated fairly, and they are treated as ATMs for for basically their, the, the female partner. They are given a lot of preferential treatment in a divorce. Now, I've straightened out my life or recovered from that financial issue, and now I'm a landlord. And as much as I feel for people that are homeless, I wouldn't touch Section 8 housing with a 10-foot pole. And there's reasons why. They, you know, I I used to live next to a Section 8 uh, building, and it was trashed all the time. Stuff was destroyed, broken windows, and I... I you know, there. The problem is that there are good people that use Section Eight and treat stuff well, but there's enough of that population that really destroys properties. So, Levi, it sounds like you're confirming that the the discrimination against Section Eight it's real. Absolutely, and it's it's based. It's like it's like I wouldn't I wouldn't marry someone that's going to trash my house. I wouldn't do business with somebody that's going to trash my house. Would you rent to a veteran who's using a federal rental assistance voucher? I I I would consider it. (laughs) Thanks. But I would be I would be very careful. I would see what kind of process there is for getting reimbursed for damage. That's Levi in St. Paul. Levi, thank you for calling in. Uh, Milton, you're nodding. You lived through this. You you had yes. Section 8 uh, as an option, but you could not find a place that was willing to accept your voucher. This is true. And now the reason why I was laughing, because one thing uh, me and Monica spoke about is bipartisan Democrats and Republicans look out for veterans in Minnesota. And that's one thing I like about Minnesota. I've lived over the country and used veterans, um, veterans' preferences in other states, but here you have a case manager. You have uh, other options, more options mm-hmm. in Minnesota. And I just want to applaud that. But going back to bipartisanship and w- 
what everybody focuses on is our veterans, but what if we shift that to our elderly? What if we shift that to our youth? What if our, our mental uh, people with mental illness? It's the same package. You just the demographic. Yeah, and the stereotypes. We have to let go of these stereotypes of of, of people. Um, Sergeant Rodriguez, someone in law enforcement. I mean, what can you say to what we heard from from what Levi just shared? So I kind of want to touch on. I want to touch on what uh, Milton mentioned. Having the resources here and, you know, the options that we have in Minnesota, we have really good options up here. And I want to say that a lot of the increase in homelessness is because we have such good opportunities for them here, too. Uh, I've encountered many families, single females, males that have come up from different states and have mentioned to me, well, they told me that you guys could help me up here. And that's why I'm here. Uh, I just ran into a a mom and a child last week that was sent down here from Duluth because we have options for them too. And so I'm I'm constantly running in from out-of-state folks that say we have a ton of options for them. And we do. We have really good options for folks that are experiencing homelessness uh, better than other states. However, we don't have enough for everyone, you know, and sometimes these shelters, these facilities are, are getting full and we don't have places to put them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Monica, we just have another minute here left. Um, I, I'm hearing this recurring thing. There's just not enough of what is working or there just are not enough options for people. We have excellent examples of what we can do for a crisis response, for permanent housing. But to Sergeant Rodriguez, I would say this is exactly why we need a federal response that is adequate and so people don't have to travel, and yet our data shows through Wilder Research that 75% of people had lived in Minnesota for years or for their whole life before they became homeless. So, yes, we have people who move. We've also had Denver call and say, why are you sending all your homeless people from Minnesota to Denver? So some people mm-hmm. move, but many people are from here. All right. Our time is up. And uh, I want to thank our guests who have shed a lot of light on this topic for us today. We've been talking with Sergeant Beverly Rodriguez, who oversees the Metro Transit Police Department's Homeless Action Team, Milton Manning, who works at Peace House, as well as serving as a justice consultant for the state's Interagency Council on Homelessness, and Monica Nilsson, who has operated street outreach shelter and housing programs in the Twin Cities area for 30 years. Uh, Thank you to each of you for the work that you're doing and for sharing your stories today. I appreciate you. Today's conversation was produced by Maya Backstrom. Be safe, everyone. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.